Craig, I reckon I could just listen to you all morning, I reckon. Some of us older people here, not just older because you appeal to the younger ones too, but anyone else? Just some time to pause. Yeah. All right. So I'll shut up. Five more seconds. That's good, mate. That's great. I hope you've come up with some wonderful, courageous definitions of courage. Um, This is my first Sunday back, so I am so glad to be here. And uh, my last Sunday here at NCR was Christmas Day. And that still lodges in my mind as being an extraordinarily, wonderfully joyful, celebrative day. And uh, I I think the census might have got back up again if you were there and you saw the sketch. Or I just love being together as a community and celebrating the birth of of a little baby that's transformed and changed the world. Whether you believe in him or not anymore of as a human being, he's changed the world. And uh, it was just brilliant to be together on Christmas Day, first time back, and I just want to say welcome back to you, but I know you're welcoming me back, and uh, I, um, I'm really glad to be here. In fact, I'm, I'm really been thinking a lot about what does it look like to be courageous, um, and if you want to track with us this morning, I, uh, if, you, if you have a Bible or an iOS device, um, you can look up this app. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15, you can just find that space and um, I look at the Bible because I think it's just more than a storybook. It's actually powerful. It's living. It kind of speaks to you. Um, and before Christmas, um, I, I saw a particular clip. So while you're finding that, and uh, it was a movie. Some of you might have seen this called Hacksaw Ridge. Anyone seen it? Um, amazing movie. I'm not usually into the war movie kind of thing, but this one just really struck me. Um, as I was watching this film, a story about Desmond Doss. A true story, World War II, um, infantry, but as a result of some calamitous times in his experience as a kid growing up, he, he, he decided that evil um, just perpetuates more evil and violence perpetuates more violence. And mixed in with his faith, his conviction in following Jesus, he, he arrived at military camp and said, I want to be a medic, but I ain't going to carry a rifle. <laughs> so his platoon beat up on him bad. Um, and he eventually he got to do his service in Okinawa, just fierce battle, and, and it's sort of the, the movie's about that battle. And there he is as a medic uh, on front lines, no rifle, can't defend himself, but just at one decisive moment, he spends a whole night lowering wounded, not just American soldiers, but Japanese soldiers down this, this huge, incredible cliff uh, to be receive medical attention. Powerful, powerful story. I left the cinema going, that is courageous, Yeah. That is powerfully courageous. So I actually, well, I do this when I'm watching movies. I came out of it and, and I was writing down my own definition of courage. As a result of seeing that, I went, courage is holding to your convictions whilst under fire. And then in brackets, even when it costs you greatly. Our mission statement here at NCR is we exist to make courageous followers of Jesus Christ. So I wondered, what would that look like in 2017, thinking ahead? What would it look like for us not to just have that word in a statement, but if we lived it? If you're here this morning and you're far from God, just checking him out. If you're here this morning and you're folding your arms, kind of, hmm. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're walking away. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're following him and your conviction is there. I want to ask you, just broadly and then more specifically, how could you be more courageous in your world this year? And if you're a God follower, what might he be saying to you over the next six weeks? Because I've been reflecting on this particular thought by a follower of Jesus and deep thinker by the name of Richard Foster. He says this, 
in these curious times that we live in right now, and they've just got a bit more curious, haven't they? Yeah? Over the last six months? These are his words. Our world is hungry for genuinely changed people. Superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. And I would add to that deep, courageous people. Because we live in curious times, do we not? And so over the next six weeks, what I want to challenge you to do, and I'm going to keep asking you the question, asking you the question is, how could you be courageous in 2017? What does that look like? And if you had to ask a daring prayer, God, how do you want me to be courageous this year? What might be he saying to you? So the first courageous thing I want you to do over the next six weeks is to turn up for six weeks. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. Sunday morning, paper, breakfast in bed. There's far more important things to be doing. But imagine if you set aside six Sunday mornings where you said, even if I can't be here because I'm in hospital with broken legs, apart from that, I'll listen to it. But come along and collect six of these sheets. Go and grab one right now. It's right next to you. It's a sheet of what I'm going to be prattling through this morning, the white sheet. Take that with you. Because there's a question at the end of that sheet. Six sheets in a row, you can collect them. These will be a collector's item in 300 years' time. (laughs) The question at the bottom is the all-important one. What might God be saying to me about being courageous in 2017? And today's question is, what are you going to do with God? What are you going to do with God? Over the holidays, I picked up a book. And the title of it is How Not to Be Secular. It's a book about a book. And the person was, was posing a question or really making a statement. How was it if that you lived in the 1500s? The idea of God and the spiritual and that there is a deity, that there is a, a power out there, God just would have been very difficult not to believe in. But yet here we are in the 2000s and the idea of God, a spiritual, another dimension beyond our own seems to many people a really difficult proposition. What's shifted over 500 years? What's in the soup? What's in the ether? What's in the air that has caused us to actually get to a stage in the 2000s where for many people, the idea of God seems to be difficult? Well, it talks about this whole movement in the 17th and 18th century called the Enlightenment. And in that time of furtive imagination, when the human independent thought and inquiry was elevated, where reason and thinking and intellect was considered to be the most important aspect that would literally save the worlds, reason would be the the aspect and dimension of humanity that would cause wars to stop and cease where reason and thinking alone would elevate the human spirit and psyche. And so there was the sciences and wonderful technological advances and all different ways of thinking about civic life that just flourished in the 1700s and 1800s. But as a result of it, the book said, this is what happened. When reason was elevated to the surface as being the primary way that you can understand, solve life's problems, look at the universe it determined that truth was going to be divided into two categories. There was the scientific truth, the repeatable, observable experiment. That was fact. And that was allowed to be in the public space. And faith, this feeling, subjective, 
rational, irrational kind of experience was going to be relegated to the private. And that's the world we live in. If you like, the, the mechanics of the 17th and 18th century began to beat out of people and create this flat world where all of a sudden reason and intellect was going to be the very thing that would cause the human race to advance. Reason would be quite reasonable. And in this flat earth that was created from that time that we live in now, we have all of a sudden this situation where in the 1500s people would have gone, of course there's a God now. I wonder if there is. Where is God? C.S. Lewis said it quite well, this, this process of altering the minds of a whole group of people. He described it in his book, The Silver Chair. As the Pevensey children had, the Pevensey children have actually gone down to Underland and they walk into a room. It's actually the dark witch's room. And as they walk into the room, they notice that the fire is crackling, and as they enter in there, she actually enters the room behind them and slowly moves her way around to the fireside, realizing that she's trapped them there in a lair. She reaches onto the mantelpiece and she takes some of her magic dust and she, she flicks it into the fire and it crackles. And the smell and the aroma starts to leak into their mind and their senses. And she quietly takes her mandolin and she begins to strum it. And she sings a little tune that goes like this. There is no overland. There is no asland. All there is is here and now. She strums away and the children begin. It soaks six into their mind and their, their, their thoughts and, and they begin to repeat back. There is no overland. There is no Aslan. All there is is here and now. There is no overland. There is no Aslan. All there is is here and now. If you like, he's, he's, he's critiquing the way in which this whole world has been shaped and a flat world has emerged where all there is is just what we have here and now. There is no other. There is no God. This is all we have. Does it make sense? In fact, what historians have taken whole books to write and describe and talk about, Telstra, with their powerful marketing arm, has just captured literally 500 years in 30 seconds. Have a look at this. This says it all, I think. Hi, darling. Hi, Grandpa. Are you ready? Yes. This is a story about magic. The green rolling hill. That's a giant. But magic isn't real, right? It's a story we tell our kids. A story we all leave behind. In adulthood, we change our mind because magic's way too hard to find. And to that fact, we're all resigned. But maybe it's all around us. Maybe it's magic of a different kind. What if I told you I could put you in two towns at once? Then would you believe in magic? What if I said I could breathe life into machines? Then would you believe? What if I could ease your mind? What if I could make you smile when you don't want to? What if I could take you higher, push you farther? What if I could promise you the world? Then would you believe in magic? What if I said I could help you save a life? Then would you believe? See, we live in a magical world. We never have to wake from our dreams. Our restless minds now free to wonder at the wonder of technology, at the magic we've created. Possibilities are like stars now. Infinite constellations fueled by pure imagination leading to one destination, to you, to thrive. 
there you go. 500 years of history has just been summed up in one powerful TV advertisement. There is no overland. There is no God. There is no magic beyond all there is, is here and now. And amazingly enough, in this flat world, the person who is at the center of it is you. Where you can create your own magic with technology and reason We can replace God and remake him in our own image. The only problem with that kind of flat earth thinking is that as Humer Kay says, sociologist, we're not really rational, reasonable people. In fact, most of the decisions we make in our own lives are heartfelt, not (laughs) head-led. In fact, we're completely irrational, unreasonable at many times in our lives. In fact, What we have in this flat world is still the yearning for something else. A person gives birth to a baby, female gives birth to a baby, and she looks at this child and she goes, wow, how did this arrive? I mean, I I know how that that sort of stuff arrived, but wow. Or, Or someone stands on the mountaintop and they look over this panoramic scene and they go, did all this just happen by space, time, and chance. There seems to be this echo, this longing, this groaning for more. That is there anything beyond? Someone actually who doesn't even believe in God finds themselves praying. Or, or some fortunate event happens in someone's life and they're just welling up from the inside. They kind of want to thank someone, but they don't know who to thank. Isn't this our experience? And the only other problem is that Jesus is not private. He's public. And so over 500 years, here we are right now living and breathing that TV commercial as though it's just fact. It said the word. But yet Jesus still speaks. Some of the happiest people who have everything in their life are the most miserable. That is, the ones who have the most stuff sometimes, that doesn't. We know that. But God speaks. What are you going to do with God. If Jesus walked the eastern suburbs of Melbourne and smelt the culture, felt the ether, I wonder what he would say. I don't think he'd have to convince people that if there was a God, that that God would love them. In this flat earth that we've created, we have really truly believed that if there was a God, we would be ultimately lovable because why wouldn't he love us? We're so important and wonderful, aren't we? No blemishes. But I wonder if he walked the eastern suburbs, these streets, if he might actually, after having performed a few miracles and blown your mind with what could be, if you might wonder and throw out the question, if there's a God, Jesus, what is he like? If there's a God, what's he like? No wonder if he might not turn to some pages in the Bible or recite some of the words that he said. And here we go, picking up in Luke chapter 15, a story that he told when this event happened. All the tax collectors and sinners were coming close to listen to Jesus. The Pharisees and legal experts were grumbling. This fellow welcomed sinners, they said, and he even eats with them. Now, the issue at cause here is that you had some people who were so steeped in the Bible and religious understanding of what God's like, and they were so convinced of a national, of the nationalism that that said, we want to stamp out all forms of globalism in the Roman Empire. They were the ones who embraced this, and they saw some outsiders, tax collectors, and sinners, the, the riffraff, the mob, the external, the ones who don't really get God at all, the ones who don't have their lives together. 
And Jesus is hanging out with them and he's eating with them. And they're grumbling. If you are a God person, if you are a God prophet, if you are the son of God, why are you bothering with them? Jesus tells three stories. The longest one of them is the third. And here's where we go picking it up in verse 11. He goes on and he tells them a story. Once there was a man who had two sons. The younger son said to the father, Father, give me my share of the property. So he divided up his livelihood between them. Let me say that again. Once there was a man who had two sons. The younger son said to the father, Father, I wish you were dead. I want what's coming to me as the inheritance when you die that would normally fall to me. I would like to have it right now. And the father after the stinging insult, did something completely unreasonable. He divided up his land and gave half of it to the younger son. We discover that the younger son takes the land, goes and sells it off, maybe to the family down the road who there's been a feud with all of their lives. They get to buy the land and he cashes in. So he's got this huge stash of cash. You can imagine this younger son He then hightails it out and get as far away from his dad and from the country and from the people he grew up in as possible. You can imagine what he's saying as he leaves. Good riddance, dad. I knew you had a soft spot for me. I knew you couldn't say no. So there you are, dividing up half your estate. I can't wait to be rid of you. I can't wait to be rid of my family. I can't wait to be rid of this small town thinking. I want to have fun. So the story goes that he, he gets away from his dad as far as he can into a distant land. With all the cash he has, he says he just spends it on every luxurious thing that would gratify the senses imaginable. Any woman, any food item, any drink to be had, and he parties hard, hard, for nights on end, having a great time until something happens. We'll pick up the story. When he had spent it all, a severe famine came on that country and he found himself destitute. All the mates that he used to have, like flies on someone's back in summer in Australia, were all of a sudden gone. He says, so there was no one there to help him out. So he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him in to feed into the fields to feed his pigs. I mean, things have got so desperate for this young man who has been living hard, finding the good life, getting away from as far away as he can from his dad and from his country, from small town thinking. And there he is, destitute, so hungry that for a Jewish boy, he does the most despicable thing possible. He has to actually work for a foreigner, those foreigners, and he's eating the pods. He's feeding pigs. You know anything about Jewish people? Pork and Jewish people do not go together. It's not kosher. We know that. He's doing the most abominable thing possible. It's the lowest of lows. Then he has a striking reasonable thought. He says, for the first time in all of his life, Some of you parents would say, finally, we have a phrase for this, the penny dropped. We don't know how or why, it got bad. So he came to his senses. Now, some people I've discovered in this world have come to their senses when it's really, really low. In fact, we often, for many people, meet God at the end of our tether. 
That's when every other construct in our life has failed and every ounce of control we've had has sort of crumbled and we must lie, cry out in a last-ditch effort, God, if you're there, would you help me? God even hears those prayers. He came to his senses and he says, just think. He said to himself, there are all of my father's hired hands with plenty to eat and here I am starving to death. I shall get up and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I don't deserve. This is true, isn't it? This is the most reasonable thing he's been thinking all of his life, right? This is the thought. He reasons to himself. I don't deserve to be called your son any longer, but would you make me one of your hired hands? You see, the son has very low expectations of his father or maybe very reasonable ones. If I go to my father, I'll do a deal with him. It's too much to expect him to take me back as one of his own. But if I could be one of his hired hands, I'll do a deal with dad. And so he does. He starts to head home. Jesus picks up the story and he, he comes here and says this. Staggering words. While he was still a long way off. I like that. It means the father must have been watching and waiting. While he's still a long way off, his father saw him and his heart was stirred with love and pity. He ran to him, hugged him tight, and he kissed him. He ran to his son, he hugged him tight, and he kissed him and kissed him and kissed him. In between, you can imagine the son pushes dad back and he says, Dad, the deal. Dad, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I don't even deserve to call your son anymore, but if you would just take me one as your hired hands, before he can even finish the words, his dad pushes him back away and he cries out of the top of his voice, hurry, hurry, bring the best clothes and put them on him. Bring a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the calf that we've fattened up and kill it. Let's have a party. This son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's been found. And they began to celebrate. Parents, um, ideally, mums, just pause here for a moment. You're pacing the steps and your son has not come home. And what's going through your mind? Because the finger's coming out, isn't it? Is the finger coming out? Yeah. It's starting to do this, isn't it? Because the first thing you do when the son comes back is that you would say, I'm going to give you a mind of my own. Yeah? Yeah, isn't this how it works? The dad. But this father, who by now we've understood, Jesus isn't talking about a fictitious father. He's talking about his dad. He grabs him and he hugs him and he welcomes him home. We unpacked this particular story in our journeys group exploring Christianity before Christmas. I said to those who were sitting there, would you go and put yourself in the shoes of the father? What do you think you would do? And I went, this is, this is, we haven't heard this before. This is ridiculous. I mean, it's just bursting our heads. They said, this is unreasonable. And I said, yeah, I know it's totally unreasonable. That's why we call it grace. Undeserved. Totally undeserved. Totally forgiven. Totally welcomed home. 
when someone decides I'm far away from God and I turn and I repent and I believe. Father runs to, picks up, holds and hugs, celebrates you as though you have never left in the first place. He had two sons, right? You see, the older brother was outside and he heard the commotion and he asks one of the servants, what's going on inside? And he tells him, and the older brother is so angry. My father is being totally unreasonable. My brother has, has shamed us. He's divided up half the wealth and gone. He's sold it to the shenanigans down the road who we don't even like. And I am not going to forgive him. The father comes out to him. He says, my son, everything I've had all of my life has been available to you. And he goes, dad, you didn't kill one calf for me. He said, but all I've had is yours. Now come in. And in that moment, the father realizes that he's had two sons, but he had lost them both. He'd lost one that was far away. And he'd lost one that was close by. Because neither of them understood how unreasonable he is. You see, we try and reason our ways to God. You can't reason with something or someone that's unreasonable like this. You can only say, thanks. I want that. If you like, the two sons are left with a decision to make. The older son is left that night with a question. What are you going to do with God? The youngest son gets to wake up in the morning time after experiencing this lovely, ravishing forgiveness and undeserved loving grace. And he faces a question of his own. Will I ask dad... To divide up the land again. What would he say? You see, because if God's loving, powerful grace has impregnated your heart and your mind, it's transformed. You no longer think in those same flat earth reference points. Why would you do that? So the first part of our series today, I want to leave you with the question. It's the most important question I think that you'll face this year. It's the first one. What will you do with God and his completely unreasonable loving grace to you? There's a decision to be made. Do you want to know? Is there any whiff, any hint of extraordinary attractiveness about who this Father, this God, this spiritual is? Because it's available to you. The simple message of the good news of Jesus is that there is a God and He is alive, and you are far more than just flat earth molecules. 
In fact, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done or has been done to you, God loves you. And if you come to him by accepting his son, Jesus, he will forgive you. He'll welcome you home as though you never left. He will wash you clean and he will fill you with his spirit and put you to work as though you're one of his own hired hands, a loving son, part of the family to transform his world for good. That promise is for you. If you're here this morning, I want to ask you, if you've already done that and you believe that this year, courageous, Have you bought into that flat world where facts are public and faith is private? I once had a guy up at the Law North Football Club look at me. I was in my 20s, drunk as a skunk. He came out into the clubhouse afterwards. He looked at me and said, I don't get you at all. I could, but it was, that's what came out. He said, I don't get you. You don't get up all the same things that you do. You seem to just enjoy yourself. I don't get you. And it was in that moment I realized the guys in the club didn't really know because I lived a private faith and Jesus is public. And I was thinking, how is it? How can I be more courageous and public? Are you public? Does anyone know? In your workplace, does anyone know? In your school, does anyone even know? Would your friends even know that you hold to this hope and his name's Jesus? Would anyone know? Or is it just in the private recesses of your... Jesus is public. He's public. If if you've made a decision and you hear that these young people and they're saying, yeah, I want to do that, what's stopping you from going, I'm going to take the plunge in the water because I nail my flag to his? Baptized. Powerful way. Or maybe you're here this morning and you hear this story and the courageous challenge to you is to say, what are you going to do with God's gracious love? Are you going to take it all for yourself, but when you get to work, you are a grumpy, old, crusty, rusty, or are you going to give it away? When you get to your school, you just go along with everyone else. If someone's teasing, you'll tease the same. If someone's, you won't get anyone else's back, or are you going to allow love to reach out? Uh, your friends, would anyone know that you act as though you know a deity, a God, someone beyond that's powerful? Or maybe to start this new year off, the best thing you can do is gather with us next week in room three at 9am. Because we're going to start at 9.15 sharp. Young and old alike, we're going to make it accessible for all and for the first 30 minutes. So starting sharp at 9.15, be here at 9 for 30 minutes. We're just going to create some space as a corporate entity and say we want to follow and seek God in prayer, and you'll join us. Parents will get their kids up younger. Kids will get their parents up earlier, and they're going to cram them in the car, and the kids are going to drive mum and dad here all the way. And they're going to say, because at the start of 2017, what I want to do is chase after God together with others in prayer. Three Sundays in a row. Next one coming, first one coming next week. What are you going to do with God? What are you going to do with God? The band's going to come right now. We're going to create some space. Because as you hear me talk, I think one of the most powerful things now we can afford you is some space for you to meet with God. To open up your mind and your thinking to what he might be saying to you. Craig's going to pray for a play for a little while. 
And what I'd like you to do is to take this sheet that you have with the question on the bottom that says, what are you going to do with God? How is he speaking to you about courage this year? As I've thought about this moment this week, two passages have come to mind. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. And then he writes this, John says, why did they do that? For they loved the approval of everyone else rather than God. They believed in him but they never actually followed him because they were too scared about what everyone else thought. They were on Instagram and they were on Facebook and they were wondering if they're going to post something if someone mightn't like them. Thumbs down. They missed out on God and all of his wealth because they loved the approval and the praise of everyone else. Tune your lives to one set of hands clapping in 2017. And they are not earthly hands. They are heavenly ones. So I'm going to leave you with these two passages. I invite you, maybe you're just new here this morning and you go, I don't even get God. (laughs) I invite you to do an experiment. God, if you're there, would you speak to me? Maybe you're here this morning and you haven't even paused to open up your mind and heart. Just a simple, honest prayer. Jesus, speak to me. You might like to reflect on these two passages. You might like to close your eyes. But I'm praying right now that God might speak to you.